Tonight, I want to talk about being in the right position. Being in the right position. And I'll, I'll, I'll deal a little bit with repentance and the gift of repentance that God gives us in order to stay in right standing with him. I am going to read from Job 5. And I have a lengthy reading for my main scripture. We're going to read verses 8 through 27. Now, both of my first scriptures are going to be from the Living Bible translation. Job 5 and 8, he says, my advice to you is this. Go to God and confess your sins to him. For he does wonderful miracles, marvels without number. He sends the rain upon the earth to water the fields and gives prosperity to the poor and humble and takes sufferers to safety. He frustrates the plans of crafty men. They are caught in their own traps. He thwarts their schemes. They grope like blind men in the daylight. They see no better in the daytime than at night. God saves the fatherless and the poor from the grasp of these oppressors. And so at last the poor have hope, and the fangs of the wicked are broken. How enviable the man whom God corrects. Oh, do not despise the chastening of the Lord when you sin. How many of us felt chastened today? Don't despise chastening of the Lord when you sin. For though he wounds, he binds and heals again. He will deliver you again and again so that no evil can touch you. He will keep you from death and famine and from the power of the sword in time of war. You will be safe from slander. No need to fear the future. You shall laugh at war and famine. Wild animals will leave you alone. Dangerous animals will be at peace with you. You need not worry about your home while you're gone. Nothing shall be stolen from your barns. Your sons shall become important men. Your descendants shall be as numerous as grass. You shall live a long, good life like standing grain. You will not be harvested before it's time. I have found from experience that all this is true. For your own good, listen to my counsel. Here we see again that God is again on the side of the poor, the needy, those that have no voice, those that have to suffer at the wicked hands of those who have more. The other scripture that I want to get is Proverbs 3, verse number 11. He says, young man... Do not resent it when God chastens and corrects you, for his punishment is proof of his love. Just as a father punishes a son he delights in to make him better, so the Lord corrects you. And then I'm going to get into another scripture that kind of um, goes along with that in a minute. But God's correction... It always comes from his delight in us, not his anger. The psalmist told us that he does not deal with us after his anger. A lot of us were brought up to fear God in a way that really is not biblical fear. 
but it's more of the fear that John talked about when he says that if you operate from fear, you have no understanding of God's love. For if you only serve him for fear of what he will do to you, then it's obvious that you're not convinced that he loves you. He tells us that in 1 John. It is because he is thinking of our position of righteousness, which releases his blessings and his promises. His correction is always to make us better. When we sin, it is not, God is not intimidated by our sinning. The Bible talks about the father chastening our sons after our own will, what we think is good. But he says that, that I don't chasten like you chasten. Because you chase them because they didn't do what you wanted them to do. And a lot of times we get upset and lash out at our children because they don't do what we think they should do. When our job really as parents is to guide them to be able to make choices. I mean, there's some rules you're going to follow. But overall, we want to, to raise up a generation to where they will choose right. They will choose grace. They will choose peace. And not have to be forced into it because anytime you're forced into something, there's always going to be a bucking up against and a resentment because it was forced upon them. That's, that's the devil. The devil is a hard taskmaster. God gently leads and guides. The devil drives and, and pushes you. We think that God has designed a specific time to do certain things in our lives, but he actually has a specific mindset that he has purposed for us to reach. I don't know what everybody in this room is going through, whether it's financial, family, spouse, whatever it may be. And we've been ensuing on the throne of God. God, I need this situation fixed. I need you to intervene in this situation. But maybe he's really not so much concerned about your situation as he is you. Maybe I need to change you, and then by changing you, your situation might change. Too many of us work so hard to change the situation more than our attitudes, minds, and spirits. We spend far too much more time praying to God about situations than our spiritual connection. We've got to stop diminishing the power of God to situations. He did not become our high priest or intercessor or our paraclete, as we call them, to be bombarded with your stuff. He wants you. And we should want him. But instead of wanting him, we want him to fix our stuff. That's part of our Western civilization of Christianity. We, we're so stuff-driven over here. Everything is about what we have and what we want to get and what we think the haters don't want us to have. It's not about you. It's not about me. He didn't come high priest to be bombarded with all that stuff. In fact, he told them, I already know what you have need of. Don't come to me with this stuff. I, I, I just want you. This, this whole thing of me that spending 6,000 years of revealing myself in the temple and the tabernacle and the prophets and the priests and the kings and all this stuff. All of this stuff was for one reason when I told them to build the temple, that I might dwell with you. That's all I want to do, just tabernacle, just fellowship. More power lies in his ability to change us than to change our situation. 
In fact, sometimes changing us will immediately change the situation because it was us that was the problem from the get-go. In fact, it was you that your surrounding and your environment responded to. Sometimes to get you in the mess that you're in. It was you. We, we set the atmosphere. God created us in, in his likenesses and in his image. God doesn't go anywhere where the atmosphere does not change some kind of way. And the atmosphere changes when you enter the room. The question is, how does it change? Does it change for the better or does it change for the worse? So for some of us, God, God's not going to rebuke your situation. He's going to rebuke you. Like I got rebuked today. Or as the old folks say, buked. Just buked. I don't know why that re was so hard to add to the word, but they didn't say it. Just buked. Been buked. Hebrews 12 and 5. This is also from the Living Bible Translation. I kind of like this version because it's kind of modern day English. Here he brings it in, what I mentioned a minute ago. And have you quite forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you, his child? He said, my son, don't be angry when the Lord punishes you. Don't be discouraged when he has to show you where you are wrong. For when he punishes you, it proves that he loves you. It proves that he loves you. It doesn't prove that he's angry with you. It doesn't prove that you're a failure. Because a lot of people think that we messed up and we're, I'm just a failure. And some of the folk in the church don't make it no much better. Because they, they just jump on your failure bandwagon and just really ride you on down into depression. When he whips you, it proves you are really his child. Now in the Greek, really this correction, he's really dealing more with just instruction. Let God train you. For he is doing what any loving father does for his children. Who ever heard of a son who was never corrected? If God doesn't punish you when you need it, as other fathers punish their sons, then it means that you aren't really God's son at all and that you don't really belong in his family. Since we respect our fathers here on earth, though they punish us, should we not all the more cheerfully submit to God's training so that we can begin really to live. Verse 10, our earthly fathers trained us for a few brief years. It was a short time, you know, that childhood span, doing the best for us that they knew how, but God's correction is always right. Somebody say, always right. <laughs> and for our best good, that we may share his holiness. His holiness is the goal for his punishment. Sharing his holiness with us is the goal. But afterwards, we can see the result, which is a quiet growth in grace and character. We should be growing from the corrections that God gives us. We shouldn't be stagnant. Like they say, repeating the same old thing over and over and over, like the children of Israel taking a two-week journey and turning it into 40 years. Why? Because they wouldn't accept the chastening of God. Like I said, our situation sometimes will have us thinking 
that we ain't the problem. It's that person over there. They ain't doing this to me. Well, some, sometimes. You may not think it all as often. You, you know, we like to make up percentage. Maybe 5% of the time. You know, people just throw statistics out. They really not true, but sounds good. 5%, we're just going to say that. But 95% of the time, it's somebody else. They the problem. Lord, fix them. Lord, fix my child. Lord, fix my husband. Fix my job. Fix my boss. They're getting on my nerves. Lord, drive the devil away. No, I put the devil there for a reason. God uses the devil. The devil don't like it, but he's getting used anyway. He, he gets used to show how much of God's child you really are. Our job is to repent here so we don't prove the devil wrong or prove God wrong. I want to be like Job where God can put his confidence in me. See that one there? You, you can throw whatever you want at him. Verse 12, so take a new grip with your tried hand. Stand firm on your shaky legs and mark out a straight, smooth path for your feet so that those who follow you, though weak and lame, will not fall and hurt themselves but become strong. Now, here he brings in something that we really never looked at because we we're so self-centered. Okay, Lord, we, we dealing with you chasing in me. All right. So what do I get out of this? I get your holiness. Me, me, me. I get what you give me. But he, he brings in a whole nother group here in 12. This is there's somebody following you. So they're going to need to see how you handle God's chastening. They're going to need to see how you're able to withstand and make it through life. When you fall, somebody's watching to see how you get up. Take a grip. Get up on those shaky legs. It's almost like a box. A lot of people think that boxing matches are over when one goes down and the legs are wobbling. The one thing that's on their side sometimes is time. God created time to say, okay, there's a time and a season for everything. Some of us have been saved by the bell in life so many times because God just rang the bell. All right, now take a break. He sends you to your corner and let your corner man say, come on now. They throw some water on your face. Some of them slap them. Wake up out of this fog. I know, you, I know you're in the fight of your life, but you got to get out there now and get the upper hand because we don't want to lose this fight. See, sometimes it's okay to lose a round. Israel lost a lot of battles, but in the end, they usually won the war. So get up on those shaky legs and make out a straight, smooth path for your feet so that those who follow you will know how to handle it when they go through it. I know we heard a lot of people preach about the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Will you be made whole? We're going to look at that for a minute. John 5. Actually, you know what? Before I get that, I put this in the wrong place in my notes. I'm going to get that in a few. I'll get to it later. Instead of John 5, let's go to Psalm 19. I'm going to read this from two versions. And actually, I'm going to read it first from the King James because I, like I like the way it's written there. Psalm 19 and 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The Amplified Version says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the whole person. And the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. When he deals here with the word, the law of the Lord, he's actually talking about the Torah. He's really dealing with only the, the five books of Moses that we find in the Pentateuch. But the word here deals more instead of just the entire law encompassed. He's dealing basically with instruction, direction, and teaching. The things that Moses wrote down that would direct them, instruct them, and teach them to live this life. This word comes from the Hebrew word, which means to shoot an arrow and is used to draw a picture of a skilled one hitting his target. It gives us a picture of the teacher aiming at and hitting the target, establishing the intended goals. Some people are gifted to teach. There's some folk that even in our schools, they don't need to be in there. They're not teaching. They don't have the ability to aim the arrow and hit the target and get that student to his intended goal. Now it's all right, everybody, everybody pass. Even the ones that didn't do so well. Y'all, y'all, y'all just wonderful. But you know, we got fails if we didn't do the work. And some of my teachers had the the ability with 20 students in a class to handle each student that were on different levels to get us all to the same place by the end of the year. And that's really what God is trying to do. There's, there's an intended goal that he wants to have the church at, at the rapture. It's called the full stature of the nature of Christ. Paul talks about in Ephesians that our growth is that he is, his body is growing into the full stature of the nature of Christ so that when he comes, He'll have a, a, a man and not a boy for his church. We don't want to be little in understanding when Christ returns. In fact, Paul teaches against uh, quite the opposite. The word perfect, the law of the Lord is perfect. It means that God's word is pure. P-U-R-E. Now, that word is a little foreign to us in 2013 because we don't have too many things that are pure. Folks ain't pure. Products ain't pure. The food ain't pure. The water's not pure. Everything's tainted, watered down, added to, diluted, some kind of way. It's just the day we live in. Truth ain't pure. Folks tell us things that it ain't true. People lie. There's no, there's no purity in the earth. Everything's tainted. That's part of the fall in the garden. That everything kind of became chaotic and, and disrupted. But he says here, God's word is pure. There's another thing that if we submit to the pure word of God, we shall come forth as pure gold. But if his word is not pure, and this is where now I understand in Revelation, we say, if you add Anything to my word, I will add the plagues to you. And if you take anything out, I will take your part out of the book. Because my word must remain pure. Because if it's not pure, it won't convert the soul. God's word, the law of the Lord is perfect. 
converting. So the, the aim, the intended, the arrow of God's word is to convert my soul. We are living in a day where God's word is being used to manipulate, to control, to trick, to connive. And these people are going to pay. These men and women that are handling God's word deceitfully and for filthy money, they're going to pay. Because the fact that they've tainted God's word, the souls are not being converted. So you got a lot of buildings around the nation. Buildings are full. Some are full tonight. Whatever conference here or there, concerts and every they're doing it, but the word's not pure. Your soul can't be converted when you tamper with the word. We got to leave the word pure. The word is spotless. This word for perfect is spotless. And it's harmless. Being absolutely well-meaning and altogether directed towards the well-being of man and woman. I'll read three scriptures. Psalm 12 and 6 says, The words and promises of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in an earthen furnace, purified seven times over. And that really means perfection. The number seven is perfection. Psalm 18 and 30 says, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tested and tried. He is a shield to all those who take refuge and put their trust in him. The word of the Lord is tested. Now, if God will allow his word to be put to a test, why am I supposed to take your word at face value? If your word is so true, why are you so offended that I'm questioning your word? If you write in what you're saying, it's going to stand the test. Some folk know that what's coming out of their mouth is impure. It's impurity coming right from their lips. And they're saying, God said, or God inspired me. Not so. Because if he said it, God says, you could take my word, go test it, and then come back to me. You'll find out it was pure. Proverbs 30 and 5 says, every word of God is tried and purified. He is a shield to those who trust and take refuge in him. Convert the soul. The Hebrew word for converting is from the Hebrew word shub. And it means to turn back, to turn again, or to return. The majority of the time this word is used in the Old Testament, it refers to a literal change of direction. And in this verse, converting also means to restore. We talked about restoring earlier. So the law of the Lord is pure. No, nothing in it that is tainted. It converts the soul. It's perfect. It has your well-being in mind when he sends it out. This is why the Bible says in its right form, if you leave God's words pure and he sends it out, it will accomplish what he sent it out to do. That's why it's perfect. It's aimed right. Now, this word shub is also used a few times in the Old Testament for the word repent. But repentance in the Old Testament, 80% of the time that he uses it in the Old Testament, it's God that's repenting. 
80% of the time. He's not repenting of sin. The idea of repenting from sin is not even introduced in the Old Testament. They gave their sacrifice, and the Bible tells us in, he, in Hebrews that when they gave their sacrifice, they were already looking to give another sacrifice the next year because they knew they were stuck in sin. They were on the cycle that God put them on. That two-week journey that took 40 years. God put them in a loop. Okay, so next year, we'll, I'll see you next year with the same sacrifice. That was for the children of Israel, but now we stuck in it. I'll see you next Sunday with the same sacrifice. No change, no conversion, no purity. See you next week, same sacrifice. But repentance was not dealing with sin in the Old Testament. Repentance just means that they change directions. A lot of times, and the reason it's 80% of the time God repenting is because because of their sin, God turned away and walked the opposite way from them. It was a change of direction. But in the New Testament, he brings in a whole other meaning for repentance. We have to repent of sin. But the concept is the same, that we turn away from sin, change direction, and now turn toward God. I guess somebody had to repent because the people sure weren't. So here the Bible tells us that the law converts our souls. But Paul lets us know in Hebrews 4 and 2 that for those who don't mix faith with their hearing... The word has no power to do anything to the soul. Sometimes it isn't that God is not speaking, but it's that we have lost faith to receive the word and the benefits of its intended target and goals. Remember that along with his word are attached promises. This is where we get the word covenant, testament. So why would a soul created by God who lives forever and the soul is created to live forever, why would that soul need to be restored? All souls are eternal, even the damned ones. So why is there a necessity of restoration? It's not going to die, but it needs to be restored. It is the goal of Satan to darken every soul that he can. Remember that there are two spirits working nonstop. God's spirit, and the satanic spirit. They're both working nonstop around the clock, and they're both trying to influence your soul and your spirit. The result of that influence will manifest itself by animating the body. This is where we get the sins of the flesh. The sins of the flesh start deeper than just on the flesh. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 and 11, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, that you abstain from fleshly lust. And he didn't stop there. He says these fleshly lusts, they war against the soul. Now he's reversing it. It, it originated in the soul, manifested itself out through the flesh. But he says that, that that movement, that motion of the flesh, it is a direct relation to the soul that it is attached to. These fleshly lusts, they war against your soul. We're not supposed to be deceived with the devil's devices. So some people think, oh, it's just a little lie. No, you, it's not a little lie. You're tainting truth. The soul is dirty when you lie, when you deceive, when you manipulate, when you hate. Your soul is blackened. 
We need the word of God to restore, to take those spots off. So we deal with being in the right position. Today we can look on a map, look at Google Earth, look at Google Map, and we can find a little bitty piece of land over in the Middle East called Israel. But before Israel became Israel, we can actually read about the person who became Israel. Remember I said that our, our troubles are sometimes reflective of our spirits, that we set the atmosphere sometimes. And this is not to say that the devil cannot attack you outside of yourself. Some things are the devil, some things are you, some things are God just proving you. It is up to us to go to God and say, Lord, what's going on in my life? Because the Bible says that if you lack wisdom, ask God. He'll give it to you. And the context of that was with your trials. Just ask him. He'll give you wisdom. And if you don't, just wait on him. We're going to talk about waiting. Because some of us think we're waiting. We ain't waited. We haven't waited. <laughs> We've read about the history of Israel, both in the Bible and in history books. And we could pinpoint it on the map. But Israel could not be Israel if God hadn't come and changed or converted or restored a man into Israel. Even today, too many are concerned about the land of Israel and they have no idea about the people of Israel. They're over there fighting over land. This thing is not about land. This is about God's people. The world has forgotten about God's people, which is why the world is in chaos now, because he told Abraham, those that bless you, I'll bless. Those that curse you, people wonder why their nations are cursed. Even in our government, there's been double talk. One minute we're standing by Israel. The next minute we're passing laws to go against Israel. We're supplying weapons to enemies of Israel. We can't have it, but our truth is impure. There's no purity in our government. And they're going to pay the price because, remember, it's not about the land. It's about God's people. Israel didn't define Jacob. Israel gets his definition from Jacob. Second Chronicles 7 and 14. Let's read that. We love this one, but I'm, I'm going to read this one. And then we're going to need to back up a little bit. All right, verse number 14 says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, this scripture is not about getting into right standing with God. This scripture is about maintaining your right standing with God. Right here, God is telling Solomon, this is King Solomon that he's addressing. At the time that God told Solomon this, they were building the temple. The temple had just been completed, the first temple, not the second one that she was talking about. The second one that she talked about earlier only had to be built because of this. If you read chapter 6, you have to read it when you get home because we don't have time to read the whole thing tonight. When they finished, the Bible says the glory of the Lord came into the temple and the people celebrated. 
In fact, I got another message for this. That if if we could if we could have a real revival, I would I would teach a message. We gonna need a bigger altar. Because in chapter six, when God entered into the temple and set his name there and his glory started to shine. Now, this temple, when it was built, is not like the second temple where he says, you got good houses and my house is in ruins. Solomon did it right. The Bible says that he completed both his house and the Lord's house at the same time. So he was fine with Solomon having his kingdom, his palace, because Solomon knew, okay, I'm going to make the Lord's house beautiful. So it was fine for Solomon to have a house. He ain't saying you can't have a, a nice house. Just make sure my house is there and its splendor is good. But he tells Solomon, Solomon prays as the people are bringing the sacrifices, celebrating that God has approved the sacrifice of the temple. Because that's important that he approves what we give him. Because there's a lot of stuff that's going, it's not approved. It's not being accepted. God's not licking it up like he did with the prophet. He's rejecting it. But here he approves. And there's so many sacrifices coming in that the altar that they built for the sacrifice, it wasn't good enough to hold because these people had a, a seven-day celebration. So the Bible says that Solomon anointed the entire outer court. He said, because this altar is not big enough. We, we need to have an approval of God to where the altar will not be big enough. We're going to need a bigger altar. He tells God in chapter 6, now, Lord, I know you're receiving it now. We're all celebrating. Hallelujah. Clap your hands. I'm on your feet. Woo, we, we did it. Then he said, now, Lord. I want to put a safety mechanism in there. If your people sin, now they're they doing good sacrifices now. Look at them, Lord. They're they having a the time. But if they sin, I want to, and, and if they come to the place where they have to repent, I want you to please remember this whole moment here. <laughs> remember all this. <laughs> Don't forget. <laughs> Cousin Malachi is over there shouting. Don't forget, if they have to sin, and, and if you have to, because everybody knows that God has to punish sin, if you turn your back on them because of their sin, and if in their, after you turn their back on them, if they come to their senses and they repent and cry out, Lord, would you please hear them? 7 and 14 was answered to Solomon's prayer. It wasn't just God saying, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. He was answering Solomon's request. Now, God sums it up much quicker than Solomon went on because Solomon had a whole lot of stipulations through chapter 6. There's a whole list. Okay, now, I want to get this straight because, so, you know, some folks, some folks technical. Every little detail, Lord, the, the, I want to make sure the cattle survive, and I want to make sure the crops grow, and I want to make sure that they have peace, and I, Lord, Lord, don't let their children die. I mean, he laid out the whole, God's answer is very short. So God is telling Solomon this in the middle of a great celebration after having built the temple, and then God places in the contract very specific stipulations that if breached, 
will without question have dire consequences because sin has consequences. But God also puts a litigation clause in there. I don't know how many of you have went to a job where you used to be able to get hired by a company. And if something go crazy in the legal department, you could go and get an attorney. I'm going to sue you. Wrongful discrimination. All this stuff. But the companies got smart. And we ain't going to be spending all this money in court and, and hiring a team of 10 lawyers. We're going to make you sign a piece of paper that if we have a disagreement, we handled this amicably between the two of us. We're just going to sit across from the table, one or two people. And you have no right to sue me. I have no right to sue you. This is what God did for them. We're not going to take our, this sin to a third party. It's just going to be me and you. God's saying, if you sin, you got to come to me. If you sin and I have to reject you, I am going to come to you. God came unto his own and his own received him not. But he held up his end of the bar. Yeah, you sin. I'm coming to you to straighten out your sin. I'm chastising you. Please don't reject it. I'm coming to you with my word. I want to restore your soul. Why, why would God have to beg us to restore our soul? This is for you. So now John 5. What are you waiting for? Let's see what we should wait for. Yeah, but later in your time, read, read chapter 6 of 2 Chronicles. And God told him, if you sin, this great temple you just built, it's going to be gone. People won't even recognize what you'll be a laughing stock. And the Babylonians came and took them into captivity. They were a laughing stock. They were sent into slavery. It happened just like God told them they would happen. But when they repented, God held up his end of the bargain. He restored the land. St. John 5. Verse 1, this is the Living Bible Translation again. Afterwards, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish religious holidays. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was Bethesda Pool, which five covered platforms or porches surrounded it. Crowds of sick folks, lame, blind, or with paralyzed limbs, lay on the platforms, and they were waiting for a certain movement of the water. For an angel of the Lord came from time to time and disturbed the water. And the first person to step down into it afterwards was healed. This is where we get that phrase, Lord, trouble the waters of baptism. Our waters are not being disturbed like this porch, but we thought it sounded good to say it's just trouble the waters of baptism. I prayed that prayer too. Lord, trouble the waters of baptism. What are you talking about? Ain't nothing in that water but the name of Jesus. That'll do it. Some of us are troubling the waters of baptism. Because we ain't repented. So much stuff has been formalized. And we've locked God in this little box. And sometimes it's not so much anything wrong with the words per se. But it's, it's the fact that we just do things without question, without understanding. And we think that it's part of our whole religious culture and that there's redemptive quality to it. 
Some of the things don't have any redemptive quality to it can't convert your soul. And that's the goal of God's arrow is to convert my soul. Where was I? Verse 4. For an angel of the Lord came from time to time and disturbed the water, and the first person to step down into it afterwards was healed. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. Somebody say 38 years. Now, Lord, I've been dealing with this thing for a year. I've been on this new job. My boss, can't, I can't stand her guts. She picks on me. It's been six months. I remember Clinton House one time was at uh, Bishop Benton's funeral. He gave a story about him and Mary when they were having troubles. And uh, he called Bishop Benton at home. Bishop Benton, this is house. I want to set up an appointment so we can, me and Mary can come talk to you. And uh, we having problems. He said, how long you been married? He said, we've been married like, like a year and a half, two years, Bishop. He said, that ain't long enough. And he hung up the phone. <laughs> Clinton called back. Bishop, what happened? Did we get, no, put some more time in and then call me back. <laughs> in other words, you, you, you ain't waited on God. They're happily married. One of they, they, You can look at them. They're a happy couple. I'm glad they worked it out. Because I know Bishop showed didn't counsel them. <laughs> but this man had been there for 38, been sick for 38 years. And the woman, the, the woman with the issue of blood, how long was hers? 12. It was 12. 12, 12 years. This man, 38, not 38 years old, 38 years sick. And when Jesus saw him and knew how long he had been ill, he didn't just have compassion on the fact that he was sick, but his omniscience kicked in and he took notice of how long he had been waiting for a miracle. And he said to him, would you like to get well? Is this a, like a trick question? <laughs> I'm at the pool of Bethesda. And he says, I can't, the sick man said, for I have no one to help me into the pool at the movement of the water. While I am trying to get there, someone else always gets in ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, roll up your sleeping mat and go on home. And instantly the man was healed. He rolled up the mat and began walking. And then we go into the Pharisees and how they chided Jesus because he healed them on a Saturday. But these people, they were used to the system of how things worked. They had become conformed to the idea of healing for their particular area. They became conformed to the manner in which their healing could take place. If you want to be healed, you got to go down to the pool of Bethesda and you got to wait there. Now, the thing is, we go to restaurants, they give you a little thing that vibrates. You can go shopping in the shopping center and do what you got to do. They didn't have that luxury to say, all right, your table is ready. All right, your healing's here. All right, the angel's on the way. They had to stay there. They couldn't go and leave and get a bite to eat somewhere because while they were gone, the angel could come. I could miss it. Could you imagine just the, the crowd that 
surrounded those five porches. This man that caught Jesus' attention had been there for 38 years. He was waiting on two things. Number one, he was waiting on the angel. Number two, once the angel came, he was waiting on a man. And ultimately, he was waiting on the system that he believed would bring his healing. That's what his hope was in. An angel, a man, and a system. Sounds familiar to some of us, doesn't it? I, 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 need, I, need, I need a man to infuse faith into me. I need somebody to give me faith. Preach faith. And yes, it comes by hearing, but you know what? Faith has got to start in the soul. And it wasn't like this man wasn't trying. He said, when the angel comes, I'm trying to get there. He wasn't just, we chide him all the time. He, he should just have faith, got healed. You don't have no faith. I'm trying. Don't you see? I'm, try, I'm, I'm coming to church every week. I mean, I'm, I'm volunteering on this auxiliary and every. I, I'm doing everything I can. So I get God's attention and say, hey, look over here. I need my situation fixed. I'm trying. I'm waiting on you to speak a word to me. I'm waiting on him to lay hands on me. I'm waiting on him to come pray for me. He says, when I'm, when I'm trying to get there, somebody always beats me. I didn't say, I don't know if he was crippled or whatever. I don't know what it, the Bible says he was sick. Didn't say he was crippled, didn't say he couldn't walk. But whatever his ailment was, he couldn't get there before somebody else. And he knew how many times he'd been too slow to get in the water, but yep, he kept trying. He stayed around till the next time. The woman with the issue of blood, she never stopped trying. She says, I, I spent all my money on the doctors. They don't know what's wrong. They can't fix me. Jesus never said, oh, we don't believe in doctors. Like some of these so-called churches where they're letting their children die because they don't believe in doctors. The apostle that the Bible had said had perfect understanding in all things was Luke. He was the doctor. He gives you one of the gospels and he gives you the entire history of the church. He performed miracles. He was a doctor, though. God didn't say, oh, you, you give your money to give your money to the apostles here. Give, give them to my boys. We, we can handle this. He never chided her for spending her money at the doctors. God already said in his word all that, the, all that a man has he'll give in exchange for his life. He'll spend it all. We learned that from Job. I will go broke trying to live. But what Jesus saw in her was the same thing he saw in this man. The fact that you have faith to keep on coming back, even though you know you're too slow to get in the water. Even though I know, woman, you've been dealing 12 years with this issue, you still keep hoping. You still keep looking. You haven't given up and said, oh, I'm just going to lay here and die. Some of us just give up. I'm just going to deal with it. There's some things that God says you don't have to settle for. There is healing. You got to keep hoping, keep trusting, and believing. What are you waiting for? Some of us now are just waiting to die. Some folks have gotten to the point in life they don't think there's anything left down here. I'm just here to do whatever I do, and then I'm, I'm just looking for death next. That's not God's will. 
As long as we're here, we have something to do. God takes his children home when they're finished. And if you're still here, he still has a plan for you. He still has a calling for you. He still has somebody's life for you to touch. Remember, look, there's somebody following after your footsteps, whether you know it or not. Proverbs 8 and 34 says, happy is the man who is so anxious to be with me that he watches for me daily at my gates or waits for me outside my home. Lamentations 3 and 16, it is good both to hope and to wait quietly. Now, that's the key word, quietly. That means while you're waiting, shut up. Some things you can't tell nobody. Some things you just got to hope and wait and trust in God. And then when God brings you out, they'll see a change in you. Wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Who quietly? I mean, I'm going to wait, but can I talk about it? <laughs> and then the Bible says in the next, I don't have it, but the next verse, he says, it is, it is good for the young people to take this on in their youth. Start this practice when you're young of waiting quietly. To that second generation of, of, of Israelites, they probably got that one. Because they were raised by the generation of complainers and murmurs. They murmured and complained the whole way. You didn't brought us out here to die. We were better off at Pharaoh's house. At least we had something to eat. We out here eating the same old bread every day. I don't even know what to call this stuff. God took them out of slavery and set them over. Even if it was a wilderness, it was a free wilderness. You weren't laboring. You didn't have to make the bread. He dropped it down, and it was sweet. What are you complaining about? Walked 40 years with no, without having to buy new shoes. God saved the leather of their shoes. So I know that next generation, man, I think we better bear this yoke in our youth and wait quietly for the Lord. <laughs> Because like our first scripture says, there's somebody following you. They're watching how you deal with God's chastisement. My child is going to know how we dealt with in answer to today's lesson. I'm chastised and I receive it. I receive it. Because I want my soul converted. I want it restored. When he comes back for me. Whether it's by the grave or through the rapture, I want to be able to say that I did what I was supposed to do. As long as we're waiting on things and people apart from Jesus, we will always end up disappointed. Waiting on God should never result in weakness, confusion, or discouragement. I'll say that again. <laughs> waiting on God should never result in confusion, Weakness or discouragement. Our strength is supposed to be renewed when we wait on the Lord. Isaiah 40. We're about to get rebuked again. That reminds me. Let me see if I can find the scripture real quick. 
Let's see, is that... No, the Lord does not confuse. He is not the author of confusion. So if you're confused, he wasn't in it. Uh-huh, in your weakness. His strength, not your strength. His strength becomes perfect in your weakness. But yet our life is all about how strong we are. So the question is, do you want yourself to be strong or do you want God to be strong? Because you, you ain't going to Second Peter. Second Peter. I'll read King James. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, love. Natalie talked about that earlier today, that if you do all this stuff, you could, you could, you could heal the sick all you want. But if you didn't, you didn't have love. And to virtue, knowledge. Grow in knowledge. We're not supposed to walk around dumb, not in God's kingdom. Yeah. Knowledge, temperance, self-control. Yeah. And to temperance, once you get self-control, learn how to wait on God. Patience. In fact, the Bible says that in patience, you take control of your soul. Talking about our souls being converted. The word of God, the Bible tells us, is a word of consolation to give us patience that we might endure our afflictions. Endure hardness as a good soldier. Add that patience. And in your patience, your soul doesn't die out. It doesn't get weary and tired and confused and wonder, oh, Lord, where are you? It knows it's encompassed in the loving arms of God that he's got you. Possess your souls. Have patience. All right, Isaiah 40. Now we can read Isaiah 40, 31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Doesn't diminish. It renews. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, the idea, the Eastern understanding of the eagle, they've proven that it's really not true, that it was more of a myth and an idea of being renewed, is that the eagle, every 10 or so years, would fly directly into the sun, one of the only birds that can do it, and allow the sun to kind of burn off the feathers. And then he would take a deep dive into the ocean and allow the ocean to break off those feathers and new feathers would start to grow. And that would keep him young. That was the idea of the writing at this time. And that was what was understood. Is that the eagle, some believed at that point, that the eagle could live up to 100 years doing this. And uh, you have some that combat it and say, no, the eagle's really only averaged 30 years of life. So that, that's still up. But the idea is that the eagle has a way of, of staying and looking young. He doesn't look old and decrepit and start to, you know, start flying low. <laughs> Even in his later years, he could still soar higher than any other bird. This is what God is doing for his people. If you wait on him, not if he answers you, not if he fixes your problem. The fact that you're waiting on him gives you enough strength to soar above everybody else. Now, we say, Lord, if, if you do this for me, I'm going to have the best shout in the building. 
when you get me out of this. No. He's worthy to be praised just with you waiting. Because the just, they live by faith. They don't live by what they see. Our, our mindsets are not in the right position with God because the word is not pure. Because we've heard all this stuff preached that you'll get your victory if you, sh if you run around the building seven times. That was for the children of Israel. And it wasn't seven times. It was 13. If you want to quote the scripture, quote it right. It was once six days a week. And then on the seventh day, it was seven times. Six plus seven is 13. And the wall fell down. We ain't got no walls. They had a literal wall and they only did it once. God never did that for them again. God wants to do something for you. <laughs> and because that word is not pure, we come and we, we do it again. We come back to the pool of Bethesda. And there's no reason now to go to the pool of Bethesda because Jesus is in, is in town. <laughs> Jesus is here now. The one that created my body is now walking up to me saying, do you want to be made whole? Or do you want to just keep on coming back here? Oh, Lord, I, I'm going to keep coming. You know, I got, I got, to, I got to come. I got to, I got to keep coming. This is what I know that will make me whole. I get my joy this way. All right. When you're ready, I'll be here. Maybe. Because his spirit doesn't strive with man always. But he says, they that wait upon the Lord. Now, let's go up a few verses in this. And then I'll, I'll, be, I'll be done. I think I have two scriptures to read after this. Lord, work on me. Yes, number 27. Now we're about to get rebuked again. Look, now he calls. Now, usually God will either call Israel Israel when they're doing right, or he will call them Jacob in their backslidden state. Here, he calls them both, which means you're double-minded. Right now, you're Jacob and Israel. That means you're unstable. Why are you unstable? O Jacob, O Israel, how can you say that the Lord doesn't see your troubles and isn't being fair? How many of us have said, said Lord, I, I don't deserve this. This, this ain't fair. I, I don't feel like you see what's going on. I, I feel forsaken. Now, we won't say that at testimony service. We'll get up and say, I'm trusting in the Lord. I know my deliverance is coming. Pray my strength in Jesus and sit down. But when you get home, and what, what does God read? God reads the heart. Your heart is saying, the Lord doesn't see this. You don't, you don't see it. Lord, in fact, you don't see it, so I'm going to just have to keep telling you what's going on. And then we enter into vain, repetitious prayers. We are the problem. So, Lord, what can I do? Lord, show me me. Yeah, they doing whatever they're going to do. Whatever. It's not about them. Lord, what can I do out of this? And even if I am being wrongly done or wrongly accused or talked about or whatever, show me how this can better 
my soul. See this right here? It's maturity. Because we want to pray, Lord, get them because they're doing me wrong. Remember we talked there? Alexander the coppersmith done me much harm. Lord, may the Lord reward him for his works. Sometimes we need to say, okay, let Alexander do what Alexander going to do. Lord, I want to be a better Christian. I want to be able to have somebody call me a Christian and not me label myself as a Christian. And Antioch, they called them Christians. You remind me of Christ. I think I'm going to call you a Christian. So he says, how can you say that? Don't you yet understand? Don't you know by now that the everlasting God, the creator of the farthest parts of the earth, never grows faint or weary? No one can fathom the depths of his understanding. Lord, you don't understand. That's what our spirits say to him. You don't understand. But he said when he wrapped himself in flesh... He became the mediator. He understood everything that you could ever possibly go through because he wrapped himself in real flesh, not a theophany. He took on the human emotions of what it was like to sit on the cross and say, Lord, why have you forsaken me? But he says here, you don't know the depths of mine. I understand way more than you do. Sometimes we as parents say that to our kids. I know way more than you think I know. Then he says, 29, he gives power to the tried and the worn out and strength to the weak. Even the youth shall be exhausted and the young men will all give up. And then we get to our text, but they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Those that wait on God, you have, you have a strength that really can't be explained. Because what you're going through and how long you've been waiting, I would have given up by now. The fact that you keep coming back to this pool and you've been sick 38 years and you know you're not going to make it to that water. Why are you even wasting your time? Some people look at us. You got nothing to show for all this faith you talk about. You might as well come on and go to the baseball game with me. What you going to church for? Because there's hope in us enough to try to, we, we got to try to get something from God. God honors that hope. But now we've got to repent at the chastisement. And he's trying to let us know, you're waiting, but you're not waiting on me. You're waiting on the system of religion. You're waiting on the Sunday school teacher. You're waiting on the bishop. You're waiting on the preacher, the evangelist. You're not waiting on me. And you're waiting for the situation to change. You're not looking at it and saying, Lord, change me. Because when Jacob was changed, the land changed. Israel became Israel before Israel even got there. I want to name you something. I want to put a new name on you. You got to wrestle for it. And you got to wrestle all night long. And it it it's not going to be a first-round knockout. That's how we want to. We want to we be the Mike Tyson of, of the gospel. <laughs> just walk in and just knock folk out. Mike, these people paid $1,200 to get in here. Could you give them just a few more minutes? <laughs> just take it to the third round at least. 
But some of us want that. We just want to walk. Ah, oh, yeah, I'm victorious. Yeah, I'm coming. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to praise God. But when you've been in a situation that ain't going nowhere, what are you going to do? Paul says, I, I prayed three times that this thing would leave my body. God said, no, I'm not taking it out. But, Lord, you said if, if we prayed anything in your name, you would do it for me. You're, you're my genie in a bottle. We got that Aladdin kind of faith. We're Aladdinists. It's our new religion, Aladdinists. Uh, we, we, we could go to the, to the genie and rub it. And we think that in Jesus' name will get you everything you want. But the in Jesus' name has to be prayed according to his will. And his will is your sanctification. So whatever it takes for your sanctification is what his will is. So with Isaiah 40 and 31, we, we love this scripture, but we rarely hear the despair and the despondent attitude of God's people before he gives them this verse. Their testimony was that God did not see or take notice of their troubles. And they scream injustice to God. Lord, your handling of my situation is not fair. You're unjust. It's bold. And like I said, it's not what a mouth say, but it's what our heart says. And in turn, it's what our actions say. Despise not the chastening of the Lord in this place today. Know that he's doing this. He's ruffling our feathers because he wants to do something in us, through us, and to us. But it's not to give you praise, honor, and glory. It's to give him praise, honor, and glory. It's for his sake that he might get the glory. How many times in our lives have we charged God with this indictment? Even when we didn't say it with our lips in testimony service, we thought it in our hearts. But, you know, at least Israel was honest enough to say it. At least just tell me the truth. I may not like to hear it, but at least tell me the truth. In the last scripture, Psalm 84. Lord, please position us right. We, we've got to have the right mindset. And it's got to come to the point to where we have to admit the places in our walk with God where we have just missed the mark completely. It wasn't God. It wasn't inspired by God. It wasn't ordained by God. And it didn't have the results of God because, it, again, we were confused, discouraged, without knowledge, and that's not God's way. Waiting on him re will renew. The scripture cannot lie. If he said that truly waiting on him will renew our strength, it will renew your strength to such a place that Stephen will one day give up his life for me. They'll stone him to death. But he knows that the change that I'm going to give him is strong enough that he won't back down. Psalm 84 and 5 says, Happy are those who are strong in the Lord, who want above all else to follow your steps. 
when they walk through the valley of Baca, the valley of weeping, it will become a place of springs where pools of blessing and refreshment collect after rains. They will grow constantly in strength. And here's the part I like. And each of them is invited to meet with the Lord in Zion. You've got to go through the Valley of Baca, though. Because with Baca, not only are you weeping, but it's dry. But if you hope in him, if you wait on him, if you order your steps after him, he'll put springs in the dry desert. And although you cry, you will be sustained. And when you get to the other side, you're invited to meet him in Zion. Now, to get to Zion, you got to go through the valley. There's no way around. Are you willing to go? And once you're there, don't be like the children of Israel who went through their valley and the whole first generation didn't make it. And y'all often heard me say, it isn't that Canaan was 40 years away. He waited for them to die natural deaths because of their sin. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to allow disease. I mean, there are a few occasions where disease came in and, and, and ravished them. But for the most part, he waited for them to die. And we do not want to be in a place till God has to just sit and just wait for you to die because you refuse to receive his chastening. Because there's a group that Paul talked about that would not receive his chastening. And the Bible says God gave them up to a reprobate mind, to do, do whatever you want to do. Don't worry about my will, nobody else. You, you do your thing. You do you. That's what, Yeah, do you. But no, your conscience is seared. I have no dealing with you. I don't want to be in that place. All, all he could do then is just wait for you to die. I, I'd rather be in a place where he can chastise me, he could get me in shape, he could rebuke me, and I could straighten up and say, yes, Lord, I'm done.